So it's Acts chapter 10, verses 23 to 48. Follow along as I read. So he, meaning Peter, invited them in and gave them lodging. And on the next day, Peter got up and went with them, and some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. On the following day, he entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. And when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter raised him up, saying, Stand up, for I too am just a man. And he was, as he uh, talked to him, he entered in and found many people assembled. And he said to them, You yourself know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. That's why I came without even raising an objection when, you sent, when I was sent for. So I ask, for what reason have you sent for me? Cornelius said, four days ago, to this hour, I was praying in my house during the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in shining garments. And he said, Cornelius, your prayers have been answered or heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Therefore, send a job and invite Simon, who is also called Peter, to come to you. Uh, he's staying in the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and you have been kind enough to come. Now then, we're all here present before God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Now, opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which, I, uh, which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is the Lord of all. You yourselves know these things which took place throughout all of Judea, starting in Galilee, after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of all these things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. Um, <clears throat> they also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, but to the witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is, to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly testify that this is the one who is appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes him receives forgiveness of sin. When Peter was still uh, speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell on all who were listening to the message. And all the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, Kenny. And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they, stay, they asked him to stay on for a few days. A watershed moment. Have you ever heard that phrase? A watershed moment is an idiom that refers to an important event that changes the direction of history. Sometimes when a watershed moment occurs, everybody realizes that we've entered into a new time. When the atomic bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, it was not just the end of the war, but people also realized it was the beginning of a new era of warfare. But other times... The moment occurs with few at that time aware of just how momentous the event is. When Martin Luther nailed his 95 thesis to the door of the Wittenberg Church on Halloween of 1517, he was hoping to gather a few scholars for a debate. He certainly didn't think that ACT would start a religious revolution that would uh, overturn the political order of his day. 
And of course, that revolution couldn't have come about except for another momentous event that happened just a few years earlier when Johannes Gutenberg invented the movable type uh, uh, printing press. His new press allowed for books to be produced cheaply and disseminated widely. Before that, almost no one owned a Bible. After that, anyone could afford one. Well, there's been many watershed moments in history. The storming of the Bastille and the French Revolution. The assassination of the Archduke Francis Ferdinand, which began the First World War. The invention of the steam engine by James Watt. Or the maiden flight of the Kitty Hawk in 1903. Could Orville and Wilbur Wright have even guessed how that would change world travel? I mean, if a watershed moment is an important event that changes the direction of history, then that's certainly what we have in our story this morning. Because before this meeting at Cornelius' house, the followers of Jesus focused almost all their ministry efforts on reaching Jews. Indeed, they believed that Gentiles had to become Jews in order to be followers of Jesus. But here we have a turning point in history. For with the conversion of Cornelius and his household, God was making it clear that anyone, Jew or Gentile, can come to him by faith in Jesus. And over time, this minority of Gentiles would actually become the overwhelming majority that constituted the church. Well, to see and appreciate how God opened the door of salvation of the Gentiles as Gentiles, we want to consider this portion of his word this morning. So when we pray, get into the text. Father God, you pray for grace and mercy. This was a momentous time. This was a turning point in history, one that we need to understand because we have all benefited greatly from it. So bless us now as we look at your word. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. You know, years ago when I was preaching about the sovereignty of God and salvation, uh, many in the church outright rejected it. Well, there were others who indeed saw it in the scripture, but they struggled to accept it. I remember praying with one such individual who said this. He said, Lord, help me. He said, it's so hard to unlearn what you think you've known for 40 years. Well, when it came to the Jews in the New Testament times, they believed that the Gentiles were idol-worshipping, pork-eating, immoral people who were lost in darkness, ignorant of the true God. And of course, they were right about that. But they also believed that almost all Gentiles were beyond the reach of God's grace. The only hope a Gentile had was to attach himself to the people of God by converting to Judaism. Yes, Gentiles can be saved if they undergo circumcision and keep the law of Moses. Well, they were required to do that in the Old Testament. But now that the Messiah has come and through his death inaugurated the new covenant, everyone, anyone can come to Jesus or come to God through faith in Christ. But you know, old prejudice die slowly. And it's hard to unlearn and give up beliefs that you've held to for many years. And so to prepare Peter to bring, uh, as a Jew, to bring the gospel message to Cornelius, a Gentile, God gave them both visions which directed them to each other. Well, here we pick up the story after they've each had their visions, and now they're coming together for this history-changing moment. So what do we see in the text? Well, the first thing we see in the text is the people assembled. The people assembled, and that's verses 23 to 33. Next, we see the gospel preached, and that's 33, or 34 to 43. And finally, the Holy Spirit given, and that's verses 44 to 48. So the people assembled. Uh, you know, the First Amendment of the United States... Constitution says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or the press or the right of the people to peaceably to assemble and to petition their government for redress of grievances. Well, back in September of 2020, Pastor Doug Wilson, a member of the, uh, uh, the pastor of Christ Church, along with uh, the members of his church, gathered together for public worship 
in Moscow, Idaho. And uh, in so doing, they were violating a mask mandate that the city had put on. The city required not only that you wear masks inside, but outside, even as you're walking through the streets. Well, the people got, gathered together and they were praying and singing the song Amazing Grace. And as they were, three of them were arrested and hauled away. Well, those three sued for violation of their First Amendment rights. The city, by prohibiting their religious freedom and their right to peaceably assemble and to, uh, to petition the government for redress, had violated those rights. The case was settled out of court and the city was required to pay $100,000 to each of them. Now, isn't it interesting, though, how the coronavirus works? I mean, if you gather for worship, the deadly virus will spread. But if you gather for a George Floyd protest, then there's no danger of infection. Evidently, the smoke and the flames from the burning buildings that were lit on fire burned away the virus germs. Well, people can assemble for a lot of things, good things and bad, for worship service or for riots. Well, here a number of Gentile friends and family members of Cornelius were gathered waiting to hear what Peter had to say to them. We read starting in verse 23. Now, the next day, Peter got ready and went with them. And some of the brothers who were from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, he entered Caesarea. Now, Cornelius was expecting them, and he had called together his relatives and close friends. Have you ever heard of gender reveal parties? Ever heard of that? It's a party thrown by a couple where the woman's pregnant, and they want to announce to their friends and family whether they're going to have a boy or a girl. Well, these parties have the usual things you'd expect, balloons, cakes, uh, and ribbons, things like that. I saw one where the cake had a bunch of question marks on it, and then when you cut into it, you see the center layer that it's pink. Oh, we're going to have a girl. Isn't that wonderful? Of course, uh, some of the leftists really are bothered by these parties. They say it reinforces the oppressive idea that babies are born either boys or girls. They'd rather see these parties put off until the kid is 5 or 10 years old, after which he, her, she, shim, zing, zang, zur can decide which gender they want to identify with. Now, it's common at these parties also to have fireworks. You take uh, colored powder and you mix it with tannerite, which is an explosive. But some of these have resulted in destructive fires. And in one case, in Knoxville, Iowa, a grandmother of an unborn baby was killed. A pipe containing the explosives and the blue powder was lit, but instead of sending it up in the air, it exploded outward. The shrapnel from the pipe killed her. What a sad day that was. Well, this was going to be a good day, a happy day for Cornelius and those assembled with him. Look what it says in verse 25. When Peter entered Cornelius, or entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter helped him up and said, stand up, I too am just a man. You know, the Pope claims to be the successor of Peter. People, when they approach the pontiff, are expected to bow and kiss his ring or kiss his toe. They didn't get that practice from Peter. The best saint is still a sinner saved by grace just like all the other followers of Jesus. It says in verse 27, As he talked with him, he entered in and found many people assembled. And he said to them, You yourselves know it's forbidden for a Jewish man to associate with or to visit a foreigner. Now, it was forbidden for them to associate with Gentiles, but that wasn't forbidden by the Mosaic Law. It was forbidden by the customs and the rules of the rabbis. What Jews were forbidden from doing with regard to Gentiles was to marry them, to follow after their gods, and to embrace their pagan lifestyle. The Jews weren't to isolate themselves from the Gentiles, but to insulate themselves from their pagan ideas. Now, even when it comes to dietary restrictions, Jews couldn't eat pork, but God never placed that command on Gentiles. But you can see how easy it would be for a Jew to look down on a Gentile who he saw eating a ham sandwich. 
I mean, think about it. A number of us in this church are gluten intolerant. You cannot eat wheat products. Well, can you imagine if a person who's gluten intolerant looked at content with contempt on someone who was eating just a slice of whole wheat bread? Years ago, my wife Suzanne and Pastor Chris's wife Leslie were working as banquet waitresses. I think it was at the Radisson at the time. And I believe it was a wedding. And at one point, uh, Leslie brought out a f- plate of food that was wrapped in plastic for one of the guests. She removed the plastic and served to him, and he freaked out because he was a Jew and her Gentile hands had defiled the food by touching it. How do you suppose Leslie felt at the time? Do you see how something as simple as dietary restrictions put in place by the Mosaic Law could make a Jew look at his Gentile neighbor with contempt? And by the way, the Romans loved to eat pork. Well, this vision received by Peter when he saw all these unclean animals coming down from heaven and he was commanded to get up and kill and eat. Peter's problem was not that he saw non-kosher foods as unclean, but that he saw Gentile people as unclean. But this prejudice was being swept away now from his thinking, for he goes on to say this in verse 24, And yet God has shown me that I am to call no man unholy or unclean. This is why I came without even raising an objection when I was sent for. So I asked, for what reason did you send me? By the way, notice at this point, he still doesn't know why he's being called here. So Cornelius goes on to say this in verse 30. He said, Cornelius said, Four days ago from this hour I was praying in my house during the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in shining clothes, and he said to me, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard, and your charitable gifts have been remembered before God. Therefore send some men to Joppa and invite Simon, who is also called Peter, to come to you. He's staying in the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. So I sent uh, men to you immediately, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, then, we're here present before God to hear everything that has been commanded by the Lord. Wow! These people were gathered together because they wanted to hear from the Lord. Now, how many people go to church for other reasons than to hear the Word of God? Some gather together to do a ritual, to pray prayers and responsive readings. You don't have to think about it, you just have to do it. Stand up, sit down, go forward, receive communion from a priest who gives you a blessing. If it's Saturday night and you get done in time, you can go across the street to the bar. Of course, the services are stimulating. They have beautiful statues and colorful stained glass. Add to that, bells ringing and incense burning, and you can walk away thinking, man, what a mystical experience I've had. But have they learned anything about God and His Word? It might be read in the service, but is it expounded and explained and applied to your life so that you can live a life pleasing of God? Well, let's not just pick on the liturgical churches like Catholic churches and Orthodox ones. What about evangelical churches? Catholic churches may have bells and smells, but many megachurches have light shows and fog machines. The people are going for a free rock concert each week. They want to be entertained. Or they go because they want to be on the softball team, or that's where their relatives go, or there's a place for their kids to go on Friday night so they're not out getting in trouble. But are the people assembling because they want to hear God's word? That's why these people are assembled. Why do you come to church on Sunday morning? You know, it used to be that people went to church simply because they needed to, to look good. That's no longer the case. A majority of Americans don't go to church. But why do you come? Is it because you want to hear the truth? You want to be free from sin? Reconciled to God? Or is it just because my mom makes me come? And as soon as she won't, I won't come. Why you're coming is just as important as that you come. Well, they were all gathered together. 
And they wanted to hear from Peter. And that brings us to our next points, the gospel preached. 34 to 43, look what it says. Opening his mouth, Peter said, Now I most certainly understand that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the one who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now we tend to show partiality towards people based on externals. You ever heard of the phrase uh, pretty privilege? It's something that a lot of women have. And because they're good-looking, because they're considered beautiful, they get certain advantages in life that the less beautiful ones get. Well, most people are impressed with money or wealth. Some people are partial towards people of their own ethnic group, but prejudiced against others. But God doesn't care about your skin color or your ethnicity or your social status. He doesn't care whether you're a, a Boston blue blood or a gangbanger from the hood, a Wall Street broker or a Tennessee hillbilly. It doesn't matter whether you come from North Dakota or North Korea. In every nation, the one who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now, Peter is not saying that you can be saved simply by being sincere and trying to live an upright life. He simply means that there are no ethnic barriers or national barriers that prevent a person from coming to God through his son. And the one who does so, as a result, will be the one who fears him and does what's acceptable to him. Well, God had already been working in the heart of Cornelius and his family members, otherwise they wouldn't have gathered there to hear. But now they needed to hear. They needed to hear the gospel, the good news of what God has done through his son, Jesus Christ. And so Peter starts his presentation by saying this in verse 36. The word which God sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he's Lord of all, you yourselves know the things that happened throughout Judea, starting in Galilee, after the baptism which John proclaimed. And Jesus said that salvation... Is from the Jews. They were the nation that God chose to work through to reveal his plan of redemption. It was to the lost sheep of the house of Israel that Jesus went to preach and to conduct his ministry. John the Baptist was the one who announced the coming of the Messiah, and Jesus' ministry and miracles were something that Cornelius and his friends gathered there were aware of. Peter said, You yourselves know these things that happened throughout Judea. Verse 38 says, You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him through the Holy Spirit with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all those who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. He heals the brokenhearted, and he sets the captives free. He makes the lame to walk again, and he causes the blind to see. Do you remember when he drove out the demon from that guy who was mute, and afterwards the guy spoke? Those who observed that display of power said, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. Some rejected Jesus in spite of all of his miracles. But John tells us that many in the crowd believed in him and they were saying when the Christ comes he will not perform more signs than those which this man has done. Will he? Over Israel's history the Lord has raised up great and powerful men of God but Jesus wasn't a mere man of God. He was God the man who substantiated his claims by miraculous displays of power. So Peter goes on to say we are witnesses of these things that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day. You know, in the 1960s, there was a police detective program called Dragnet. And the two main characters were Sergeant Joe Friday and his partner, Bill Gannon. Uh, and when they would be questioning people, sometimes they'd get a woman on there who just keeps going on and on. And Sergeant Joe Friday would always say this, all we want are the facts, ma'am. Just the facts. Well, the bare-bone facts of the gospel are that Jesus was put to death by hanging him on a cross, but three days later, God raised him from the dead. But it's not just enough that you understand or know those facts, you have to understand the significance of them. Jesus was sent by God 
from heaven to live a life of perfect obedience. After 33 years of doing that, he offered up his life as a sacrifice for sins. There, while he was hanging on the cross, God placed all the sins of those who would ever believe in him on Jesus, and he was punished instead of us. God's wrath against sin, the sin of God, uh, Christ's people, were poured out on Jesus. That sacrifice was sufficient, we know, and the payment was accepted because three days later, God raised him from the dead. And in so doing, Christ conquered death, not only for himself, but for all who would believe in him. Peter goes on to say this, and he granted that he would become visible, not only to, or not to all the people, but to the witnesses who he had chosen beforehand by God. That is, to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. By the way, what's the significance of Jesus eating and drinking with him after he rose from the dead? Well, it's to prove that he wasn't a mere spirit, an incorporeal phantom like the Jehovah Witnesses teach. A resurrected Jesus could still eat fish. A ghost can't eat anything, not even booberry, cereal. Some cults teach that Jesus did not, uh, was not resurrected, but the Bible clearly teaches here that he was resurrected physically. It says in verse 42, it says, in order to, uh, and, and he ordered us to preach to the people and to testify solemnly that this one has been appointed by God as judge the living and dead. Jesus, listen carefully, folks. Jesus is the one that you have to give an account to on Judgment Day. He said of himself, for not even the Father judges anyone, but he's given all judgment to the Son so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. John 5, 22-23. Paul, when he was preaching to the philosophers on Athens, said this, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he's fixed the day when he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Acts 17, 30-31. Every one of us is going to have to face Jesus on Judgment Day. He said on that day, everything hidden will be revealed and men will give an account for every single idle word they spoke. Not crude, wicked words, but just careless words. What a sobering thought. And by the way, what a terrifying thought if you're not a Christian. You see, the good news is that today, even though Christ is your judge, he offers himself to you as his def uh, your defense attorney. If you will turn to him, he will turn not as your judge, but as your defender, pleading his death as a payment for your sin on that day. Will the defendant please rise? Based on the death of the Son of God for your sins and his righteousness imputed to your account, this court finds you not guilty. Case closed, the defendant is free to go. My sins, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sins not in part but the whole, are nailed to the cross and I bear them no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. You see, the good news is too good to be true, but it's too true to be denied. Jesus died and was buried and rose again on the third day. And Peter says, all the prophets testify of him that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah, all pointed towards the coming of the Messiah who alone can provide sins, or forgiveness for sins for those who trust in him. All you have to do is believe. 
And shock of shocks, Cornelius and the people in his household did just that. That brings us to our last point. The Holy Spirit is given. This is 44 to 48. It says, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. Now, the Holy Spirit is the third member of the Trinity. The Spirit is the one who regenerates and changes the heart of a person to enable them to see the beauty and truth of the gospel. It's after he makes them alive spiritually that a person believes so as to be saved. Now, here Peter doesn't even get to the invitation to believe and repent. Romans 10, 17 says this, uh, Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. It was as they were hearing about Jesus that the Holy Spirit came upon the Gentiles. What? Gentiles received the Holy Spirit just like we Jews did at Pentecost? But how can that be? I mean, hold it, these are Gentiles, right? And all the circumcised believers, it says in verse 45, who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speak with tongues and exalting God. Now, tongues in the book of Acts was the, speaking, the ability to speak a language that you'd never actually learned. And these people were hearing these Gentiles now praising God in languages that they hadn't learned. It was given as a visible sign that the Holy Spirit had come upon these Gentiles just as he had done the Jews earlier. And then Peter said, answered and said this, Surely no one will refuse water for those, these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, Kenny, and he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. By the way, notice they were baptized after they believed, not before. But much more significant is the fact that the Gentiles were saved, listen carefully, as Gentiles. They didn't have to become Jews first. Now that doesn't surprise any of us, but it was stunning and shocking to the people of that time. It was almost inconceivable and it was going to ruffle some feathers back in Jerusalem. This salvation shift that God had made in his plan was one the church actually had to call a council to wrestle over this radical idea that Gentiles could come into the church as Gentiles on equal footing with Jews that believe. And after a heated debate at that church council, they're going to come down on the right side. And they're going to come to believe what Paul taught when he said this in Galatians 3, 27-29. For all who are baptized into Christ Jesus have clothed themselves with Christ Jesus. There's neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. You see, one of the main purposes of the book of Acts is to show that this movement of Messianic Jews in Israel turned into a world, uh, worldwide religion called Christianity. Well, that could never have happened if God had not broke down the barriers that divided the walls between, or a dividing wall between the Jews and the Gentiles. And now the Holy Spirit is calling people into Christ's church so that someday a great multitude, which no man can count, from every tribe and every tongue and peoples and nations, will be standing before the throne of the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. I mean, that's why we send out missionaries. That's why we broadcast the sermons over the radio station into over 100 countries through the internet. That's why we witness the family members and coworkers and friends. And that's why we assemble here every Sunday morning to hear from God and to hear about Christ. And as Gentiles, we should thank God and praise Him for this watershed moment that came in history at the house of a Roman centurion named Cornelius. Because if that wouldn't have happened, we'd never be here today. God's working all the things out according to his plan. And his plan is that Jesus should be glorified by people trusting in him.
have you trusted in Christ? Let's pray. Our Father and God, that's what it comes down to. There's people sitting here today. There's people who are going to be listening over the radio and over the internet. We're going to shrug their shoulders, go back to sleep, and not think a thing of it, and then perish. Lord, we don't want anyone here to have that happen. I pray for each one here, Lord, that they would respond to the gospel message so as to find eternal life. But that's only going to happen if the Spirit comes upon them just like He did those in Cornelius' house. So we pray that you would do that. You would make that happen so that uh, these people who hear the word might be saved just like those in that day. So bless them now and us too. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, why don't we stand and we'll close by singing a song together.